Hello and welcome to an innovative part of the Constitution UK project. I'm here in the studio and we're going to be answering, trying to answer, live tweet questions about the Constitution and specifically the European part of it. Now I'm not able to do this on my own. I'm joined by John Springford. John, how Hello. are you here? Well, I'm here because um, you invited me to come along, Connor. <laughs> you have an amazing expertise that you well, can now reveal. Well, I have, to, I have to say at the beginning that I'm not a lawyer. So, um, so some of this stuff about the Constitution might be over my head. Um, what I've been working on is the economics of the relationship between the UK and the rest of the EU. Um, and particularly what the economic consequences of leaving might be. But obviously these kinds of questions really bear on the whole question of sovereignty, whether it's worth giving up some of our sovereignty in order to be able to share economic competence with the rest of the EU. So hopefully I'll be able to add something. Oh, very good, very good. And of course, I am supposedly have this constitutional expertise. Mm -hmm. So between us, we should be able to manage most of these questions. Hopefully. The hard ones about sums and arithmetic, <laughs> I'll send to you. Please don't send any. Please now, we've send. already had quite a few. So yeah. let's have a look at the first one here. Can you see it? Uh, are we doing, would a permanent link with the EU constrain or eliminate parliamentary sovereignty? And this has come from Morgan Gross. Do you want to have a go at that one? Well, yes. I mean, I guess the point is that we already have a permanent link with the EU um, in the sense that we are members and um, there are institutional processes which govern what we are allowed to do and what we aren't allowed to do as members um, and that they are in the treaties of the EU which we have signed up to. Um, so in that sense, um, the EU already does constrain and eliminate par parliamentary sovereignty. But I suppose the question is, um, uh, uh, and there are some other questions which might come up as a result of this, you know, would codifying what the EU is allowed to do and what it isn't allowed to do in our constitution make much, make much difference mm. to the current relationship? And I would argue that it would. Um, and the reason for that is if you have a, have a think about the, the German constitutional court and the way it's been behaving in terms of the Eurozone, for example, it's been placing strict limits on what the, uh, the government of Germany, the federal government of Germany, can do. Um, it's been trying to, at least. Um, and a lot of what happens in the Eurozone has uh, been taken to the uh, German constitutional court to check whether it fits with the German constitution or not. So in that sense, having some kind of um, binding uh, constitution or the EU, what the EU can do written into the UK constitution might have a similar effect. Yeah, very interesting. Morgan, mm. you've asked the question, mm. and the German is a good example from John, because, of course, because they have a constitution, guaranteed dimensions to it. Stuff has to be tested mm -hmm. by the German courts before it passes muster. With us, I think the important word in your question uh, is a permanent link, because in a country with proper parliamentary sovereignty, nothing is ever permanent. So, for example, we have these deep links at the moment, as a result of which the courts have to obey, Parliament has to obey, the European line on famously, for example, Spanish fishing vessels within the territorial waters of what used to be called Britain. They had to be allowed in. But permanent? Well, Parliament still has the capacity to walk away from the European Union. So what we have at the moment is deep, but it's not permanent because where Parliament can change everything radically, nothing is permanent. And so we have this significance of this referendum, which is promised by at least one of the parties, the Conservative Party, if they win the election. The referendum would be in or out. So 
maybe if we vote, we want to stay in, that'll make it politically permanent. But legally, nothing is permanent. Now, if we go for our constitution and we decide to put at the start of the constitution, Britain is a part of the European Union, and then we make it very, very difficult to change that constitution, how you change constitutions varies from place to place, then we might effectively have entrenched it. Do you think, John, that in Britain should have, in way back when it first joined, 1972, do you think they should have entrenched it, made it impossible for subsequent parliaments to even raise the issue of leaving the European Union? Or do you think that would have been a bit too much? Um, I think that would be way too much, actually. Um, yeah. I, think, I think that with something like the EU, which is an organisation which um, moves forward, although we're in a period of regress, I suppose, at the moment, or at least stagnation in terms of, in terms of the ever closer union which is written into the Treaty of Rome, um, that, that because the EU changes character over time, if we think about what's happened since 1973, you know, we've had a, we've had a single market which has meant that um, the member states have handed loads of power over regulating their own economies to the centre, to the EU institutions. Um, and we've had um, uh, the euro, the introduction of the euro, which, as we've seen, has had huge impacts on people's lives, particularly since the crisis started in, in, in earnest in 2010. Um, and so the idea that we should bind ourselves, you know, forever, or make it extremely difficult for ourselves to be able to say, no, actually, we're going to get out of this club, I think is probably a bad move. Yeah, right, right. It links up to uh, Laurie Roux 169. Laurie Roux 169, in case you're out there. A question, is it possible from a political point of view to repeal the European Communities Act? And it's a good question because legally, the answer is straightforward. Yes, you can. Even the European Union, I suppose, allows there are some implied ways of seceding. Politically, it's an interesting one. Until quite recently, I would say that politically it was a non-starter. But we have seen quite a dramatic change from renegotiation in order to make the deal better to renegotiation or we're off. And renegotiation is now a normal political discussion, even when it's accepted that renegotiation is unlikely to happen. So it's become politically feasible in the last few years. Would you agree with that? Yeah, John? absolutely. I mean, there's, um, there's this famous concept, which I don't know if you've heard of, called the Overton window. No, I never heard of that. <laughs> called after some bloke called Overton. Yeah, some bloke called Overton, who um, ran quite a right-wing think tank, I think, in the US. Um, but he had this quite helpful concept, which is that there's things which are just unthinkable. Um, and the job of think tanks and politicians, I guess, um, and they're outside the Overton window, and the job of think tankers and politicians and other people who want to try and change people's minds is to try and shift the Overton window so that something which is unthinkable becomes thinkable. And I would argue that leaving the EU um, and that idea, which was probably unthinkable until Maastricht. Um, you know, when most was that? 1992, was it? 1992. You know, you had, sure, you had Labour um, in 1983 wanting to come out. But through the 80s, Labour changed its mind. Um, and uh, Jacques Delors and his Social Europe and all that sort of stuff got Labour on board. The Tories um, were definitely on board, really, until, um, until Maastricht split them. But since then, you've had a concerted campaign by Eurosceptics, extremely well organised, to shift the Overton window to make leaving the EU 
a, a political viable, politically viable prospect. We can debate about whether it's a good idea or not, but they've certainly been successful. And are you trying to keep the Overton window in a direction you want it to be? Are you one of the guys pulling away from that? Well, Is that your job? <laughs> yes. Um, so the Centre for European Reform, we probably should have disclosed this at the beginning. Um, I'm inviting <laughs> you to do before we get a thousand yeah, 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 exactly. Um, the Centre for European Reform is a pro-European organisation. We're, we're a think tank. Um, we try to be as honest as we can. And we're, and <laughs> as we're, honest as, uh, as, as you we, can get away as, with. No, as we possibly can. We're, we're, we're extremely academic and highfalutin and, you know, very honest, as all yeah. academics are, Connor. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're, we are pro-European for reasons. Um, and I guess my role... Maybe not in this discussion. I'll try and be as objective as possible. Yeah. But generally, my role is to, to nudge in the to try of to try and try and tug away from yeah. that. Well, here's one that came up, John, and it's from mm. I don't know how you pronounce yourself. It looks like IKEA, but it's not. It's Ikelso? Ikelso. Ikelso one. If you're out there, what are the implications of low voter turnout in European parliamentary elections? Now, we're trying to build up interest in Europe. We're trying to keep that wind the way we want it. You know, with lots of European assumptions, and yet people aren't voting. That's quite, I agree, I think the implications are severe. When a democracy doesn't have enough people voting to plausibly claim to be a democracy, that democracy is in a bit of bother. Now the European Union, Parliament is its democratic element, the European Parliament, it's in a bit of bother there, isn't it? Is there any way around that? What are the, you don't know, I suppose. Do you, I suppose. Do you know what the percentages are of people who vote in European well, in the elections? UK, yeah, I was yeah. down in the thirties. Yeah, so the last time around, yeah. two thirds of the people who can vote don't, don't vote. vote. No. Is there? Is that important? Do, am I right? It's important, and is there are ways it could be fixed. Yeah, no, it's definitely important. And I suppose one of the things that we've seen in Western Europe generally is. Um, that voter turnout in all elections has been falling. And you would expect the European Parliament uh, turnout to fall you know, faster. I mean, it was at a lower base anyway. Um, but the reason for that, I think, is that, that um, one of the reasons, maybe you have an idea about this too, Connor, that voter turnout in general in elections is falling is because people think that their votes don't really count very mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. um, and also that they feel alienated from, political, from the political class and various other things. But, the European Parliament, if you think that it represents 500 million people um, and you are voting to elect your representative from your region, London in my case, um, and you know there are hundreds and hundreds of regions that are represented, then it doesn't really feel like your vote counts. Um, and Also, it's almost too big. You could turn out to vote for a parish council because mm. you care deeply about mm. that road mm. and you know they'll change the road. Yeah. And you mightn't bother voting yeah. for a European thing because it's just too much. Is that is that sort of part of the psychology of it? I think that's definitely true. I think it's also that um, it's really remote. And a lot of what the European Parliament and the European institutions do is really boring. I mean, if you think about chemicals regulation, which caused a huge flap, um, you know, I think that went through in 2012, 13. Um, you know, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we ought to care. We ought, we ought to I mean, care. It Maybe, might I affect mean, the way we <laughs> consume foods. It might affect the health of future yeah. generations. But... but in terms of the regulation that, say, the UK does um, of its own economy, um, most of it, we don't, there isn't much democratic oversight or thought about because regulation is really technocratic, mm. complicated, mm. It's a bit boring. Um, the thing that really, so in terms of the European Parliament not having much legitimacy, that's a real problem. And I, and I, I think it's a problem in terms of the single market, you know, our relationship with the EU, the fact that they regulate our economy, that, that's certainly a problem. But the really acute problem is for the Eurozone countries yeah. because the European institutions are making decisions which 
you know, decide how much they, their government can spend, you know, um, and, um, and there's no real democratic oversight from a, from a Eurozone whole point of view about what's right, going on. Right, because we're talking about the Parliament mm. and we're thinking it's too far away and so on. But the assumption there is it makes the decisions. Mm. And of course, mm. we both know, and everybody knows really, mm. that another dimension of difficulty here is that it's not a Parliament the way we think we understand mm. Parliament. Mm. Now, there are defects with Westminster and so on, whipped votes and so on, but at least it makes stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Parliament there does co-decision making mm-hmm. with this bit, co-decision making with that mm-hmm. bit. And then, of course, when you come to really tough things like the bank mm-hmm. and the Eurozone, as mm-hmm. you were saying, mm-hmm. it's not even within the mm-hmm. framework of mm-hmm. conventional EU institutions. And that takes us, in a way, to one of these questions from N. Charlamalides, I think. How legitimate and democratically accountable is EU law? Now, you say... In Charles Melides, that this is in superseding UK law, Mm. but actually it's a more general point, isn't it? Is this, I think it is myself actually, a problem that the EU has as well? It's not just the problem of remoteness of the European Parliament, it's the problem of people not being fools and seeing the key decisions are being taken elsewhere Mm -hmm. and wondering why bother, you Mm. know? So, so wait, so you, you agree that there's a real problem. First, the EU law supersedes UK law. It definitely does. It definitely does. No and, problems with that. And that, that that is illegitimate. And that the way in which laws emerge and the way in which decisions are taken in parallel with laws yeah. are not sufficiently democratically rooted for that to be explained in a simple way as being the consequence of democracy. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. Um, I mean, if we were to talk about, say, um, let's talk about bankers' bonuses. And the fact that the EU has said, right, we're going to put a limit on bankers' bonuses. The UK, as it turns out, and the UK government is upset about this, and um, it's dropped its court case, but it did take... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's take, going to take a bankers' case, yeah, wasn't it? There was. It was going to take it to the ECJ. <laughs> Ended up dropping it because it thought it wouldn't win, rightly. Oh, um, they just thought it wouldn't win. It wasn't about the optics. They didn't mind that... Oh, well, maybe it was the optics, yeah. but I don't think that they were going to win either. Yeah. Um, but um, the, the point there was that... Um, when the decision was taken to, to limit bankers' bonuses, um, the council, the European Council, which is the, the, uh, the ministers, council of ministers, um, the representatives of the member states from our governments, um, they agreed, the majority agreed through um, qualified majority voting that this would happen. And then the European par- Parliament also agreed, and so yeah. it went through. But this was against the UK's wishes. Um, and so I guess the question is, you know, is... Is there any way that we can make, that we can have efficient decision making about these aspects of our economy or society, or whatever, European, things which have importance at the European level, which this clearly does, um, if, uh, and have democracy at the same time? Mm-hmm. Like, could it, could it have been, you know, the, the UK people, I'm not sure this is true, but if the UK people had said, you know, we really don't want to limit bankers' bonuses, but then everybody else did in Europe, is it legitimate? Um, seeing as we've signed up to the treaty that governs these institutions and allows these institutions to work this way, is it legitimate for the process of lawmaking in the EU to be, to be stymied, to be stopped by yeah. one member state? Wow, well, you see, what you've got there is a perfect example of this radical tension between Europe as a community of citizens acting together for change and Europe as a collection of nations or mm-hmm. states mm-hmm. acting in the state's interests because take the way th- decisions are made. It's complicated because you've got the states that insist on having a joint legislative role 
through what you've called earlier mm. the Council of what was mm. called the, Council, the European Council, the European. and that reflects the nations, mm. and then the European Parliament reflects the citizens. Mm. So, if we were thinking about it, say in British terms, Cornwall couldn't suddenly constitute itself as opposed to something. Well, Scotland's been trying Scotland's to do it. Scotland's getting there. <laughs> Scotland's yeah. getting there. Yeah. Places yeah. within countries mm-hmm. are always trying to achieve a kind of degree of autonomy. London. Mm. But they generally don't work because the nation is what makes the decisions. Mm. If we follow that model, the idea of Britain as a separate autonomous entity that can mm-hmm. resist European stuff mm-hmm. would just be uh, disregarded. It would just mm. be a bunch of people who happen to live on that island up there mm. who are being outvoted. Mm-hmm. So the European... Project tries to run both at the same time, citizens yeah. and states. Yeah, and and the way that the 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 rest of Western Europe, which has been historically keener on integration than Britain has, I mean not all, but a lot of a lot of countries, yeah. the way they've dealt with that is through opt-outs, right? They've said, you know, you don't you don't have to go along with this bit of integration. Allow some pick and choose, um, Schengen, uh, yeah. the euro, and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and Ireland so, and abortion laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And is that, but that Britain's done that as well, hasn't it? Hasn't it worked in the past? I mean, Britain, for example, they were able to opt out of what was called during Mr. Major's time. We've got a question coming up from Henry Blaine, I think. Oh, oh, we've got lots of messages. Uh, We should carry on. They're pouring in. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, H. Blaine, it may not be Hillary Blaine, H. Blaine, which was about is the social Europe gone? Is it time to give up on that? But that was an example of where there was a social Europe, Mm -hmm. big deal, workers' Mm -hmm. rights, Mm -hmm. equality, Mm non-discrimination, Stuff that converted the Labour Party to Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Britain, in the normal way, as you're saying, kind of normal way, mm-hmm. signed an opt-out. Mm-hmm. That's, in a way, that's the future, you think, is that countries can opt out as they wish. Yeah. Well, I think we're already there. I think yeah. that, and, I, and I think the fact that um, the euro now dominates what happens in the EU, the eurozone, and its problems dominate what happens so much that um, I think that we are, we are already on a sort of twin track the single market EU, you know, the Scandinavians and, yeah. and the UK and then the Eurozone. Yeah, interesting. Now, I'm going to take Steve Gregory, 125. I'm going to take you myself, Steve, because you've asked a question which stands for the whole project, actually. It's a question which rolls like this. Are we trying to write a constitution based on current European Act or desired changes? Now, writing a constitution, you have to work out whether you're trying to capture the moment you're in in detail or whether you're trying to capture the moment you're in in abstract and in capturing it in abstract, trying to explain what's fundamental about the moment you're in, which will last forever. The constitutions that pick up on the detail of the moment are constitutions that are very soon out of date, superseded. They've turned some passing discussion into a permanent feature of the country. That doesn't work. There are lots of examples of constitutions which go too far down that route. So what we're trying to do here, British constitution, European constitution, we ought to be trying to capture the essence of what we regard as important with some broad brush rules which then set down the basic principles of government. I think that's what we should do. On this, I think, John, the European thing was too ambitious with the European constitution, wasn't it? Tried to cover too much, would you say? Uh, I I, um, uh, am no expert on the European Constitutional Convention. Um, But one thing that I was going to ask you was, do you think that it might be an idea if people tweeted what their suggestions should be of what those broad-based principles that yeah, you're talking about would be. What, you should yeah. keep tweeting. You should keep, but yeah. rather than just questions, like what, whether they, should, they have some suggestions. I yeah, it's a good idea. We've got a that. bit of time. If you're watching and you want to tweet some basic fundamental values, I suppose the rule of law. A tricky mm. one would be diversity because one of our questions 
which has come through, mm. was about whether we should restrict freedom of movement. Ah, yes. I think it's coming up here. It was, oh, there so it was one. It was a little bit down the screen, I think. But yes, I saw that. Yeah. And we, we would have to take a view on freedom of movement. Now, presumably, one of the key things for your Europe is not only free movement of money, but free movement of peoples. I, I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of weird in the UK context because I think it's by far the best thing about the EU. Um, you know, the fact that if we think about what it's like um, for Central and Eastern Europeans um, and what it means, um, it's basically the biggest um, advancement of liberty for them uh, since 1989 and the Berlin Wall came down. I mean, it's absolutely huge. And the idea that, um, you know, that we would, as members of the EU, um, attempt to opt out from that, um, I think would be just wrong. Um, and I think would be bad for us and um, bad for Europe as a whole. Um, there's a question of whether we could. Um, I think that um, it's been made pretty clear by um, the other leaders uh, of member states in the EU, particularly Angela Merkel, um, that any renegotiation that happens, um, they will not allow limits on freedom of movement itself. They might tinker a bit with you know, how much access to benefits migrants have, but they will not allow uh, the UK to, to put numeric limits on the number of people who can come. So if we had a written constitution, which we drafted in mm. this project, mm. and it asserted the British power to determine who should enter the country, implicit in that would be a rejection of the European Union. Yeah, you'd have to leave. You'd have to leave. So you that would be a leave. covert way of leaving the yeah. European Union. Yeah, which uh, actually a lot of Eurosceptics have been, have been pushing for. I mean, uh, I've had I've had a, a few events with um, some members of UKIP and some very Eurosceptic uh, uh, members of the Tory party, and they say, we don't necessarily want to leave the EU, um, but we just want to be able to limit uh, migration flows, knowing full well that that is so embedded in the treaties, in the case law of the ECJ, um, in all sorts of regulations and other laws, that it's just not possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there are pouring in yeah, and they're moving sorry. at such high speed it's yeah. actually hard to catch we should, them. We Can we go quicker. to Jack Leon Bradley under Emma Houghton? Emma, you're one, maybe get John to answer <laughs> that one, simply put, <laughs> and then we go to the Jack Leon Bradley one. Emma Houghton's question, very short, well within the 140 characters, should the UK join the Euro? No, no, definitely not. Uh, <laughs> the, the Euro has been an absolute disaster. Um, and, uh, you know, for a pro-European like me, it's, it's made the job immensely harder um, in terms of trying to keep the UK in. I think despite the Euro and what's happened, uh, we should stay in. But the UK should certainly not join the Euro. The problem with the Euro is that if you have a single interest rate, which governs an entire continent, um, then you end up with just crazy capital flows, macroeconomic misalignments. Everybody could have known that, though. I'm no economist, and it seems yeah, to be yeah, yeah. clearly No, absolutely. Did... They replicated the gold standard. Um, yeah. And the, the rationale behind it is that if you have one currency, then it means that trade is much easier because you don't have all of the costs of having to convert yeah, everything to currencies and all yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and it did have a trade effect. It definitely had a trade effect before the crisis came. But there was also all of these huge capital flows that happened as a result of it, which ended up being hugely destabilizing. Capital washed into the periphery, into Ireland, into Spain and other countries, then washed out again once the financial crisis came and now they're in a terrible state. So it's like having a bunch of kids who eat so much chocolate because you've left chocolate chattered or scattered all around the room <laughs> and then you come in and shout at them for eating chocolate. Yes, exactly, and try and take, take the chocolate away from them. And put them on cracked diets. <laughs> yes, exactly, in the hope that that will make them better. The poorer periphery. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. you've got yeah. a link questions here. We've got link questions here. Jack Leon Bradley I've already mentioned. Mm. 
does it make economic sense to leave the EU? To leave, leave the EU, EU I think yeah, it yeah. irregardless of the law. So, is it is there a good economic argument for leaving the European Union? Well, I, th I think it's I think it's an extremely weak argument myself, um, despite what I just said about the euro, um, because. You hear quite a lot from people that, well, let's try and, um, you know, the euro crisis just, you know, it's stagnant and dying. The rest of Europe's um, messed up and we should just leave and, and uh, sail the open seas. But the problem is that we're tied to the continent, to the rest of Europe economically. You know, by far our largest trading partner is going to continue to be huge investment flows between us and the other member states. Um, and by, you know, flouncing off in a huff because of the euro, that will still be the case. The euro will still not be a you know really functioning um, currency union, um, and um, the UK will have just increased trade barriers between it and its biggest trading partner. Mm -hmm. So we will end up in a worse situation. That, that's my view. But won't we be able to do these? I'm putting a devil's advocate argument mm -hmm. here. But won't we be able to do these special deals? So actually, mm -hmm. you know, we'll have all the benefits of the European free trade without any yeah. of the red tape and political <laughs> correctness gone man and all those foreigners coming in. Is there a sort of win-win here for mm. those who would be determined to leave? No, you're in or out. Um, if you're out, um, then, uh, uh, then you say, right, we're going we're gonna to not be a member of the EU um, and um, we're not going to sign up to any of the rules which govern anything and we're just going to take our chances. That would be economically hugely damaging. Yeah. If you join the European Economic Area, which Norway and um, Liechtenstein and Iceland are members of, then you sign up to all of the rules in order to have access to the market. Um, all of the European rules? All of the, all of the economic rules, all of the single so market rules. So even leaving Liechtenstein Den and Norway? would produce a replication of... Yes, it, it, would be, it would be loads worse because we would have less power over those rules as well. So if you're going to leave because you're concerned about sovereignty, don't join the EEA, leave properly, then you'll have sovereignty. If you join the yeah. EEA, you'll have less sovereignty. Right, so that's an even worse deal. Yeah. Uh, what's the brilliant argument that your opponents make when you make all these points? Is it... I think... I think uh, I'm so biased, you know, I think, oh, they're going to sort of buy butter sell butter in New Zealand or something, yeah. but is there some hidden market out there that clever apologists for leaving the EU can point to and say, I mean, you're misleading us all again? I think, I, think, I think the best case that you can make for leaving is, we'll sign a free trade agreement because it will just be too difficult. Yeah. And, we'll, but and we're too big. And, they and we're too big. And, we're too, yeah. and we'll, we'll try and, we'll try and, we're obviously going to have to share some sovereignty over the rules because they'll demand that. Like we can't just go and sell um, cars which have our safety standards and not the EU ones to the EU, they won't accept it. So we'll do all of that, but we'll get rid of all of the things we don't like, like the common agricultural policy and so on. Yeah. I agree, common agricultural, agricultural policy is a disaster. Yeah. But then we can go and really pursue, um, uh, to pursue um, other countries. Mm -hmm. Whether um, we would be able to sign lots of free trade agreements as a little, you know, comparatively small market on the edge of Europe whether it would be a priority for, for China and the US, I'm not sure. But mm. that's the best argument I mm. think that they can make. One of the mysteries, and it's T.J.C. Parker, who's come up with this, T.J.C. Parker. Mm. I'm going to call it a mystery and then try and answer it. Mm. The exact tweet is, why do you think there is now a growing support for UKIP? And will it continue to grow? It's intelligent to have that second bit as well. I think, myself, the mystery I'll now try and crack, there is a growing sense of estrangement from political power, and you see it in an animosity towards the exercise of political power at Westminster, in Europe, and a hankering for a simpler age. Now, I think 
this negativity and hankering is part of the effects of a global movement which has produced new ways of doing business, new connections that are much less rooted in land, much less rooted in nationality, and people feel a little separated from it. And UKIP is the, I think I'm going to say English, because I don't think it's British, manifestation of that. Other parties manifest it in other places in different ways. The Greens, to some extent, manifest it from what we might think of as a left position. In Ireland, a, a formerly uh, politically violent party, Sinn Féin, have transformed themselves into this party. In Greece, we see it successful on the left, but we see it also on the right. So this is a, a nostalgia and an anger and a sense of impotence, in my opinion. Will it last? Well, will UKIP secure votes? Some. Will they break through? On our voting system, definitely not. But do people even want them to break through? I foresee that they won't do particularly well in the elections because there is a problem here. And we saw it exposed by Natalie Bennett the other day in a gruesome interview on LBC. The moment you engage rationally on trying to produce credible answers to the problems you've identified is the moment your authority seeps away. Because you can point out the problems like the man in the proverbial pub. But when you are intending to claim an entitlement to high office, you have to do more than that. And that's where the realities of global power and the realities of free movement and the reality of Britain's relatively unimportant role in the world, a very hard thing for many Britons to take, comes home, to use a jaded metaphor, to roost. John, do you think? I think that's an excellent answer. I've got nothing to add, really. I mean, well. Maybe one thing, which is that um, it's a comparatively... Uh, well, just on the question of whether it will continue to grow, um, I think it will, and I think the reason... And these parties which you described across Europe, I think that these will also um, continue to do well. Um, the reason why is because there's, a, there's an economically cyclical component of this, right? That UKIP, until the financial crisis, you know, it was doing okay um, and certainly growing, but it hasn't, didn't have the sort of breakthrough success that it's had since. Um, and the clever thing that they did was to link um, the European Union question to one of migration. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people feel under pressure, you know, e economically speaking, um, a lot of people are struggling. Wages of, real wages have only just started to rise. Um, and a lot of people are stuck in part-time work, underemployment. So, um, you know, the, there's a bit of scapegoating going on about immigration because there's no link between immigration and, and, and jobs um, and a very weak one with wages. Um, but UKIP has been very clever in capitalising on some of that anger. And that's true also of other um, countries, uh, other countries' parties which are, which are you know, Eurosceptic, anti-EU, anti-globalisation. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because Mary Peach, 75, has asked, why do you think anti-EU sentiment is growing? And there's a kind of bit of a paradox here because... One of the ways in which we're trying to tame globalization is the EU. It, you know, you come up with this idea of having countries join together to try and speak with one voice in order to take on international corporations. Quite a lot of international corporations don't like the European Union because the European Union can produce a degree of regulation which is not available to individual states. But why is anti-EU sentiment growing? Notwithstanding what I just said, I think it's part of the panoply of blame that people feel is correctly to be blamed because of their responsibility for the current situation. Mm.
It's very hard for EU to get out of that. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I should have said in my previous answer, and it fits in with this, that um, the reason why I think it's going to carry on um, um, is because our elites don't really seem to have a solution to the current malaise that we're in in Europe. You know, we're stagnant. Our economies aren't growing very much. The UK to one side. where the eurozone is still still struggling and there's very high unemployment in a lot, a lot of countries. So. Yeah, yeah. There was an earlier question about uh, identity. I'm going to just put it to you. You just answer the first thing that comes into your head. Where are you from? What country? What place? What do you describe yourself as? British. British. Yeah. And I, I have to say, immediately describe myself as Irish. Mm. So I, I don't think of myself as European. And this is that clear... Avril, why do you think so many people in the UK still identify as British, not European? I think, Claire, if that is your name, I think Europeans generally go nation first, Europe second. If you're in a pub even in San Francisco or something, you never say, oh, I'm from Europe. Mm. You say, I'm from Ireland or I'm from Britain. In Britain, it's complicated because some people say, I'm from Scotland, mm-hmm. I'm from Wales. Mm. But you say, so, fr- fr- from, from Britain. So I think it's a characteristic of the continuing importance of the nation state within the European community. Do you think, do you think we ought to do the Scottish question? Do you remember yeah. there was a Scottish, Scottish yeah. question further down? Yeah. Um, I can't remember exactly who, what it was, but it was, um, is, you know, is, this, is Scotland, if Britain leaves the EU... Oh, yeah, EU, that's right. Yeah, there was something in there earlier, yeah. If Britain leaves the EU, what does that mean for Scotland? Yeah, we can't remember who it was. Yeah. Somebody sent a really a good, good, good tweet question. on that one. You try and tackle um, that one. I think, I think if, uh, you know, let's, let's paint the scenario. 2015, David Cameron wins. Um, he leaves his referendum until 2017. Um, there's, you know, there's a, there's a mess up the, uh, the campaign horribly and the UK goes. Um, I think that Scotland, uh, Scotland will have a legitimate reason to say um, we need to have another referendum on independence because what we voted on last time round um, is not what you've given us. We voted on being a member of the UK and a member of the EU. That's our constitutional settlement. Um, but that's not what's happened now. So we should have a vote. And I think that, I think that they would vote to leave. I felt in the run-up to the referendum last time mm-hmm. that the reason for voting yes to independent Scotland was that this was about the next referendum, not this referendum. Mm-hmm. And you've exactly outlined what could happen, especially with the Conservatives doing better on opinion polls than people expected. They could lead a government with the capacity in the next four years to leave the European Union, in which case the Scots will have been marooned in isolation against their wishes because of an earlier vote in which they narrowly voted against independence. I don't think you even need to bother about a referendum. I'm sure there are international lawyers who will say that there might be some sort of right of self-determination here or some sort of declaration of independence might be called for. Do they have to wait for the permission of possibly a conservative UKIP mm, coalition mm. to leave the United Kingdom. Well, they'd be waiting a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's a good good point. Uh, there have been a number of questions on the connection with the European Court of Human Rights and the mm. European Convention on Human Rights. We I haven't got it I think that's one just here. I think it's one for me. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we might try and find some. I think there, there was one bit below, I think, uh, there's the immigration one, and... Yeah, there, uh, a bit further. 
bit further down, I think we've got so many of these, which is fantastic. Uh, no, it must be further up. Yeah. But it's clear as if you keep an eye and see if you can find. Okay. It. Yeah. There we go. Is it possible to leave the ECHR yeah. without leaving the EU? And who did that come from? That was from Jack Leon Bradley. Jack. Yeah. Good man, Jack. Yeah. Uh, the answer to that one is there are two sides to it. Personally, I believe it would create a mini crisis in the European Union if the British pull out of the ECHR. The ECHR is the European Court of Human Rights, as Jack knows, but not everybody might, which is in Strasbourg and which polices the European Convention on Human Rights, a different Europe than the EU one. But it's not impossible, you know, that the European Union's court, which is probably where this will ultimately matter, would say that the British constitutional tradition effectively is the same as the European Convention on Human Rights. And so because the British constitutional tradition has not been changed, if anything, what's likely is that the British authorities will enact a new Bill of Rights for Britain, they'll probably, this would be my guess, I may be wrong, say, on balance, we're not going to force you out of the European Union because you have seceded or removed yourself from the Council of Europe. The political pressure not to do so because of the implications for the European Union would, however, be, I think, intense. Human rights, it's not quite like free movement of people, but it's not far off it in being one of the keynote signatures of the European Union. The European Union, with all these nations, has difficulty identifying its underlying values. And certainly the rule of law, uh, diversity, respect for human rights are among those that most Europeans would come up with. So for the British to pull out of the whole of the Council of Europe would be a political problem. I don't think it would turn into a legal one myself. I don't think so. Uh, Has delegated, has the EU let corporate financing turn it into a bureaucracy? Uh, is it a bureaucracy? There's not that many civil servants in the European Union, is it, John? No, I think there's... Is there more in the Welsh office, or was that yeah, no, false fact? No, I think, that's, I think that was certainly true. I don't know if it's still true. But it's, but it's, not, it's about the size of a, me, a medium-sized government department, isn't it? The, the European Commission. Um, I mean, there's definitely a problem, as there is in all countries, um, all jurisdictions, um, with exactly how we should allow corporations to interact with the legislative process. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's putting it very delicately, isn't mm. it? But, um, um, how <laughs> corrupt the process. <laughs> yes. Um, and in Brussels, you know, Brussels is, you know, it's now a, a lobbying capital because it's a regulatory organisation. The commission, the, most of the commission's work is regulatory. Um, it's about how we regulate our economies. Mm-hmm. So the latest fight has been about um, how we integrate digital markets better. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a tricky question because um, on the one hand, it's obviously really problematic if corporations turn up, change rules for their own, for their own benefit um, and uh, damage the interests of, say, consumers or citizens. That's obviously a problem. But then there's also the point that um, corporations do have knowledge of the way that their markets work. And it seems to me that it's up to civil servants and commissioners, you know, to be able to differentiate between what is clearly a self-serving argument mm. um, and um, one one which is potentially quite helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if they can't do that, then they're not doing their job. So I, I sort of feel a bit more relaxed than a lot of people do about it because 
Um, you know, I think a lot of a lot of civil servants are capable of doing that. Yeah, good. Mm. Okay, well, here's two which are kind of open goals for a mildly pro-European. Though I know you're here totally on balance. <laughs> Natalie one nine three. Do you think membership of the EU has contributed to peace since World War Two? And then Nick Wright, Proud City. Would our global influence be diminished if we leave the EU? In a way, they're political, not constitutional questions. Is that why you're avoiding them? I'm not avoiding them. I have <laughs> views which okay. are even more uninformed than usual. <laughs> um, so on the first one... Contributed um, to peace. Contributed yeah. to peace. Um, it's difficult because there isn't a counterfactual. But um, we don't have an alternate history that can explain it and guide us. But if I were to take the, what's going on in Ukraine and Belarus right now um, and what Russia... Um, is doing in terms of its aggression towards um, uh, towards the Ukraine in particular, and then potentially, sorry, not Belarus, the Baltic states potentially. Yeah, I was thinking um, of the revolution I'd missed. There, yes, yes, I yes. Was, I was too exactly. nervous to ask you. <laughs> yeah, about yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done. <laughs> um, that uh, that if we had the counterfactual that none of those Central and Eastern European states were now members of the European Union, um, do we would we be more scared about what Russia would be might be up to? Um, the answer to that is yes. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. Um, and the, in the sense that the EU has created some sort of liberal, democratic, um, Western uh, entity, however you know imperfect and problematic an awful lot of what it does is, um, that, that, that has created some sort of solidarity which has made it more difficult for external powers to cause trouble and also for illiberal and autocratic regimes within the EU to be able to have power. Yeah, yeah I'll do the second one because I do have a point of view on it. Nick Wright, Crowdy City, would our global influence be diminished if we leave the EU? Look at how little influence there is now when people think that Britain wants to do something separate from the EU. The obvious example is Ukraine, you know. I mean, it's France and Germany working together to try and persuade President Putin to come to some sort of agreement on Ukraine. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is left commenting like some kind of journalist on the sidelines. That will be so exacerbated if the United Kingdom leaves the European Union. I don't think this notion of a special relationship with the United States, which I think was always a bit of a fantasy, is even any more a kind of plausible fantasy. And global influence has sharply diminished in the period, in my opinion, when countries have been thinking of Britain as a place that you don't go to to get influence within the European Union. You go to it in order to get influence within Britain. Well, it's not a powerful enough place. I'm sure, I know nothing about the field, so I can hazard a generalisation, the Foreign Office old hands are in despair at the decline of global influence already as a result of a sort of rather insular approach that the United Kingdom is taking. Would that be fair or unfair, do you think? It's a bit strongly put for you. You have to keep an eye on balance. <laughs> no, I'd agree with that. I mean, I'd just, I'd just add one thing, which is about trade. I mean, a, a lot of people say, well, um, the great thing about uh, uh, leaving would be that Britain could go and sign lots of free trade agreements with other countries. And I think this was one of the questions which, which came up. Um, and so, you know, you ditch Europe and hitch ourselves to you know, the rising um, emerging powers in the US. Yeah. Um, but the thing about trade agreements um, is, that, is that size matters, because if you've just got a relatively small market, 
Um, and you know, the proportion of China's exports that go to the UK is you know, maybe you know, two or three percent of its total exports. It's not going to care that much. Um, and we've seen with China and Switzerland, they signed a free trade agreement, that the terms were actually pretty, pretty much on China's side. Um, so, you know, in terms of in terms of trade agreements, we may wish that the EU did more of them and that they were better at promoting free trade. Um, but in terms of the trade agreements that it signs, then they tend to be more comprehensive than the ones that we would. So, when we see Kyle Ryan one hundred and one coming in with saying, "Must agree, UK has little influence these days, EU or no EU," maybe Kyle, if Kyle is your name, maybe there is marginally more influence within the EU than not. Because if the EU presents as a trading block with a bargaining position, and the UK has worked a space within that bargaining block in pre-bargaining negotiation, that's better than being a small place dealing with, for example, China, I think. Uh, I don't know how we could persuade you, Jamu Scan. The EU is a corporation run by unelected corporate bodies. Is this not so, you say? Well, is that so, do you think? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, what, one of the things that I get frustrated about a bit about um, uh, being in, in favour of the single market, you know, um, the fact that we, we have a, a, a common economic space, um, is that uh, a lot of people aren't really very economically liberal. I'm myself a, a pretty economically liberal person, and I think that um, making sure that there's as much competition as possible in Europe between uh, companies between individuals in terms of labour markets and immigration helps with that. That those things are good things. Um, and there's always a risk, I guess, that corporations can take over the regulatory process, which is supposed to ensure that that competition happens and try and dampen down competition. Mm -hmm. um, but broadly speaking, I think that the EU um, has, has been pretty successful um, at opening up some closed national markets, which are dominated in some cases by monopolies, um, to foreign competition, yeah. and that that has generally been a good thing for us as oh, consumers. Oh, so one of the things that we all hate, we're told to hate, French people owning all these important things, you mm. think is marvellous. Yeah, absolutely, because, um, well, in terms of ownership, because if you have investment coming in, then you have new know-how. We wouldn't be able to build nuclear power stations in this, in this country. We don't have the know-how, so we need to get it from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and it's helpful if that process is, is eased by having rules which make that, make that process work. Yeah, I don't want to put you under too much pressure here, but we're getting a bit of Twitter energy around uh. these TTIPs. We've got ah, Catherine yes. Witt and we've got yeah. Kyle Ryan coming back in. TTIPs, you might need to explain what they are if yeah, you want. Yeah calling into question democratic integrity, so secretive. So it's a kind of sister of the same point we've been talking about, yeah. the corporate point. Yeah. The EU's doing these secret deals to push liberal trade. Yeah. It's all very well for you as a fan of it, <laughs> but there's huge suffering as a result. And, you know, some of the people here are saying this. Yeah, so TTIP is um, the mooted free trade agreement between yeah. the EU and the US. Um, and I agree that the process is secretive. Um, the reason that, for this usually given um, is that when trade negotiations are going on, then countries want them to be done in secret um, because they don't want to show their hands and they don't want uh, there to be a huge, um, uh, you know, huge democratic storm about particular elements of it, which I think is bad and I think that that, that should stop. And the EU has made some steps towards trying to be more open. So um, uh, the Commissioner for Trade, Malmström, has um, published some documents saying these are what our positions are. I, I think that 
some of the paranoia about TTIP is paranoia. I, I think that there are problems. So one but, problem. I mean, Kyle Ryan, you know, we know so little about it due to the secrecy. You know, it's quite yeah, hard yeah. for you to allay anxiety with so much. No, but we know the we know the broad outlines. Go and yeah. read Commissioner Malmstrom's papers about what they're what they're trying to do. Just one thing on ISDS, which is what everybody's upset about. This is the thing that's going to destroy the NHS. Um, oh my God, what's this? ISDS? ISDS, ISDS is... It's not IDS, it's not the minister. It's not no, the no, minister. no, 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 okay. no. <laughs> um, it's um, the Investor State Dispute Settlement Mechanism, I think. Okay. Um, and the idea is that uh, um, investors who go and, in, go and invest in a country can take a state to court uh, to say, look, if, if that state then um, takes their investment away in some kind of sense, they change rules or they make, it, they make that investment no longer viable. Um, and this is supposed to destroy um, the NHS. That's, that's, not actually, that's not actually the case. Um, the, the difficulty with ISDS, I think, comes from the fact that um, there, are, uh, there are potentially some areas like tobacco advertising where ISDS has been used by corporations to try and stop advertising from happening. That kind of thing, I think, is a real problem. And I would get rid of ISDS. Yeah. Um, but I think that in terms of the NHS, it will be okay. Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, mm. I think we're sort of beginning to wind down here. We've had mm. a blizzard of Twitters. This might be the last opportunity to be pushing something through into the Twitter feed. We have mm. from the idea of... This is from the Constitution UK itself, I think. Mm. Dean, sorry? Oh, no, I think, I don't know. Oh, it's from Dean in Surrey. Uh-huh. Uh, is political union and free movement of people, are there requirements for tre- uh, free trade? a good trade? question. I mean, free movement of people, I suppose, needs to be part of it. Political union, is it? Is it, do you think? Dean in Surrey wonders. Um, is it a requirement for tre- free trade? It seems to me it's not a requirement. Is it? But, but it depends on what you mean by political union, I suppose. I mean, I, I would say that... Um, Free trade, you can get, you can make trade freer in two ways. One is to get rid of tariffs, you know, taxes yeah. on trade. Um, the other is to try and make regulations similar. So it's so you know, a car that's done to UK standards can be sold in other member states, and you do that by saying, okay, we'll have EU standards for cars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in order to be able to have some sort of process for deciding what that rule will be, you need to have some political process. Um, so. It depends on what you mean by political union, yeah. I suppose, is my weaselly answer. Yeah, well, it sounds fair <laughs> enough. I'm not yeah. going to contradict it. I mean, uh, well, I think mm. we're, we're going to wind up mm. now. We've got this opportunity to push ahead these discussions in the Constitution UK at the website, www.constitutionuk. We're pushing for end of March, early April, Constitution drafting session. The people who've been most prominent in, who've been most popular in their choices in the website will come in and work with facilitators here to produce this constitution in the end and one of the issues as we've mentioned here we're going to have to address is the whole question of the role of Europe and whether we impose a European sovereignty on the constitution or the other way around make it impossible to be within Europe let's see but for now I'd like to thank you John very much for coming along experimenting this form of intellectual engagement it was great it was great are you enjoying it yeah yeah it was brilliant thank you thank you and thank you all for joining in so enthusiastically